All right. Well, good morning, everyone. All right, I hear you. I miss Terry, too. Carrie, too. <laughs> Not Terry, but Carrie. And uh, Melissa misses Carrie. And Grace misses Carrie. Right? But he will be back next week. That's the good news. Bad news is you're going to be hearing me today. The good news, the good news about that is you're going to be hearing from God's Word. And that is a no-miss every time, for sure. You know, I was looking at this bigger stage up here, and um, Jeremy, who you may know or may not know, is my son that just made the announcements here. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me as, as to why he wanted this stage to be bigger. It takes me back to our first, well, actually our second stint as youth pastors in the second church. And you remember this, Debbie? Oh, yeah. It was our very first Sunday there. And uh, it was... It was a pretty significant-sized church with a lot of people in the room, and Jeremy was our only child at that time. So we were introduced to the church body. Now we go up in front of the church body, and Jeremy proceeds to run all over the stage while we are being introduced. You try to, you know, like, you want to just grab him somewhere. (laughs) But I've learned something about Jeremy. It didn't work then, and it won't work now to try to contain him as far as that goes. But, so I am not surprised that there is a bigger stage here in the room today. All right. Well, what motivates one person to love another person? Sometimes it comes natural. And sometimes it is earned. Well, when it comes natural... For any parent knows this feeling, the very first time you hold that new little baby in your arms and you look into the eyes of that little baby, the love is absolutely there and it's instantaneous, is it not? They don't even have to earn it. (laughs) In fact, they do everything they can do for the next few months to, to not earn it. Nevertheless, you love that child regardless of the circumstance, regardless of everything else. You love that child. It's absolutely natural. But then there are times when love is absolutely earned. For David, in the Old Testament, the king, he earned the love of three men. We're going to talk about that love today. We're going to talk about King David. We're going to talk about his kingdom. We're going to talk about him pouring something out on the ground. You'll see what that is in a few moments. And then we're going to transition very briefly to Paul being poured out and land with talking about Jesus Christ pouring out his life, establishing a new kingdom, and earning our relationship and our love for him as our king. 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter. Is where we're going to begin. It was during the time of harvest, and it's verse 11. It was during the time of harvest, or 13, I'm sorry. Three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam. While a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold. And the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Now, 
think about what's going on here. There has been a mighty war between the Philistines and the men of David. Now, back at Bethlehem, where, where, did Dave, where was David born? The city of David was Bethlehem. There was a well outside of the city walls, and David was longing and thinking about that water. But who was there? The Philistine garrison was encamped right there. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, David did not intend for a moment for anyone to go down and get that water. Have you ever been so thirsty, parched, that you're thinking, Man, if I just had that water. For me, after living 12 years in Colorado, and I drink the water here, I'm just saying. <laughs> I think of that water. And I say, wow. If I could just have some of that water, it's the best. You don't have to bottle it or anything. It just comes that way. You're thinking about that. And you're parched. So David's thinking out loud. Well, the men, several men in particular, were standing around and they were listening and they heard him talk about the water. And he said, hey, Let's do something about this. So the three mighty men in verse 16 broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. So what do they do? They risk their lives. They fist pump, high five, whatever they did. And they said, let's get him some water. And off they go. Back behind the enemy lines, in risk of their lives, and they get this water. And what do they do with it? They carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Curious, huh? He wouldn't drink it because he recognized these men expressed so much appreciation and love and adoration for me that they went behind enemy lines and they got this water and they brought this water back to me. So I can't drink this water. Now you would think the right thing to do is say, wow, thank you very much, drink the water. David was overcome by the adoration and the love of what these men expressed to him. And he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. Point being, this water is so precious that it was given at the risk of the blood of these men whom I love and I serve and they serve me, that this water is worthy to be given as an offering to the Lord. And he pours it out before God. Well, this isn't what made these three men or gave these three men the title of David's mighty men. In fact, that's what they were called. 
we have to go back a few verses in this same chapter and we read their stories beginning in verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Joshua, Beshebeth, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Now that is like, you know, I mean, you could take Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, the Hulk, huh? Four, come on, Aquaman, Aquaman. <laughs> That's your favorite, as he drinks water. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Huh? Yeah, wonder. <laughs> Thank you for balancing this out. What else? Who else? Iron Man. Yeah. The guy with the shield. Uh, the um, Captain America. All of them combined. I mean, this would... 300 men. Now, we don't know if this one encounter was one day, several day battle, a week battle, or a battle that went on for a month. But what we do know is he killed 800 men. Think of it. The spear. That's one. Two. It's a long way to 800. A long way. Huh. Next to him was Eliezer. Son of Dodai. I like that. (laughs) As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamum for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. Now wait right here for a moment. Get the picture? They're saying, come on, bring it on. All the Israelites are standing, bring it on. We want you Philistines and we want you now. But the other Israelites retreated. But Eliezer stood his ground. And as as you go back into Chronicles, this is talked about also back in the book of Chronicles, the 10th and 11th chapters. David and Eliezer fought, fought together. But it talks about Eliezer here because he's one of the mighty men. He stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Do you get that picture? Someone that has battled so hard and so long that their hand is cramping. But it's locked on that sword through the cramp that they can't let it go. The first guy, Joshua, he served God against Overwhelming odds. 800 men, right? Eliezer served God in a time of overwhelming fatigue. That's where we find ourselves. So often serving God out of overwhelming odds. And many times on overwhelming fatigue. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Oh, by the way, here's the key to uh, Joshua's secret. 
The Lord brought about the victory with 800 men. The Lord brought about a victory right here on that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. (laughs) Okay, so all the guys that are back in the weeds, all right, they're, they're peeking. Oh, yeah, it's going pretty good. When David and Eliezer win the battle, they come out of the woods, out of the weeds, wherever they were, to strip the dead, the spoils of war. Now, you may mock them, but I see myself there. All that Christ has done, all that our God has done, so often I feel like that I'm one stripping the dead. What I mean by that is I'm reaping the spoils of what Christ has done. Oh, by the way, so are you. Is that awesome that we get to do that? And he does not mock us. There's another guy. Next to him was Shama, son of Agi. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. Now I want you to get this picture. You've got to get this picture. This is a bean field. Okay? Shama is about to fight for what? A bean field. Did you catch that? It's just a bean field. Okay? You can grow more beans. But Shama took his stand in the middle of the field. He defeated it, defended it, and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Again, we learn who brought about the victory. But Shama, can you see him out in the middle of a field full of lentils, defending it with his life? See, he loved his king. And he knew the kingdom that he was in was the kingdom that brought him everything to his life. It was so rich to him. This is a picture of someone that will serve their king in a humble place. The first man, Joshua, served his king against overwhelming odds. Eliezer, he served his king in a time of overwhelming fatigue. You ever feel that way? A little tired? A couple of you look a little tired. Why don't you go ahead and wake up? No. Shama served his king in a very humble circumstance. You know what? It doesn't matter to the king. It doesn't matter how humble your circumstance is or how humble you believe the thing that you're doing for him is. We're hearing from the dog right here in the front. (laughs) It's all right. I love it. I mean, he's the only one who lays down and goes to sleep. (laughs) Others sleep upright. (laughs) Okay. Wow. They love their king and they serve their king because of what he has done for them. He's laid down his life for them over the years. 
They may have been there when he stood up even before he was king against Samson or against Goliath. Samson, he didn't stand up against. (laughs) That was another big guy. And he stood up against Goliath. They probably saw that. They heard the stories of a young shepherd boy who protected his sheep with a sling and rocks. They saw him do battle. They saw that he stood and fought when others would drop back. They read his mighty words throughout the years. They heard his poems and his songs. They loved this man. They loved him. David poured out the water as an offering to the Lord. That takes my thoughts to another pouring, and it's it's his second book of Timothy. This was near the end of Paul's life in this second book of Timothy. And he's talking to Timothy, who is his young protege, is his apprentice. More importantly, he's his disciple. And he's pouring in over the years into the life of Timothy. And when you read these two books, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it's instruction to this young man. In fact, pastors today all over the world take 1 and 2 Timothy as, as primers. It's how to do ministry. It's based on these two books largely. And in that second uh, book of Timothy, in the fourth chapter, beginning with the sixth verse, it says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. My mind, as I was working on this over the last couple of weeks, I just kept going to this passage. When David poured out the water, I kept getting the picture of Paul pouring out his life. Do you see it? And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I want to write this someday. I want to write this someday. To be able to say, yeah, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. What's kept the faith? That sounds like just some generic term. You keep the faith. Keep the faith means that no matter what the circumstance you face, that you will keep continue to turn and say, God, I am trusting in you in this. This is an ugly circumstance I am in. It is uncomfortable. I don't like it. Could I just skip this chapter of life and move on to the good chapter? The happy ending? Whatever it is? No. Keeping the faith is grinding it out like Eliezer with a sword frozen to his hand. Do you see it? That's keeping the faith in the most difficult times, but it's also keeping the faith in the most wonderful times. Because I have found that somewhere in the middle is the easiest place to stay close to God. But when things are going extremely tough, it's hard. But when things are going extremely well, it's hard. 
Why is it so hard? Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to really follow Christ like you need to when things are going great in your life? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I have a couple of theories, and that's what they are, theories. But one of them is you don't need a lot of faith when things are going great. You're feeling pretty much self-important. You're doing okay. You know? It's going well. But Paul kept the faith. Let's go on. Now, now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's looking forward at this point. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I love the last line because it includes us. All right? The rest is kind of like about Paul. He's sharing with his young friend, Timothy, about himself, what he's looking toward. Now he transitions to saying, guess what? Others long for this. Others have the opportunity for the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me and to us on that day. If you're in his kingdom. That's the provision. It's not automatic. It's not, yeah, I believe Jesus. It goes to, I believe in Jesus. I've put my weight and trust and faith in him. I don't believe he's a good man that taught good things and he was a prophet. That doesn't bring us to the point where we can earn the crown of righteousness. Because here's what I know about righteousness. You're not righteous. You can't get righteous. Paul wasn't righteous. He didn't build up an account for him that outweighed the bad things he did. He did a lot of bad things. But he was declared righteous by a judge that we see in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 28, kind of the last words of Jesus or the last few words of Jesus, the last time he had a, had a meal with the, his disciples that followed him. And at the communion ta- table that we celebrate, he was having a communion in the upper room. And he said, this is my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He pours it out. Pouring out of the water. Pouring, pouring out of a life by Paul. And now this pouring out. I want to read, because it says it better from, uh, from my journal, because I'll forget some of these words. <laughs> so a couple of things that I wrote this earlier this week. David poured out the water from the well at Bethlehem's gate on the ground as an offering to the Lord. It reminds me of Paul near the end of his life as he shares with his young disciple Timothy 
the verse we just went through. Paul's words take me to my king. And the day that he poured out his blood is an absolute covenant, eternal promise for the forgiveness of my sins. Jesus went behind enemy lines and was willingly captured, unjustly tried, wrongfully convicted, brutally beaten, ridiculed, laid bare before all to see, nailed to the cross, and crucified, all the while carrying my sin. Through it all, he became my king. Because of all of this, and because now I am in his kingdom, when we pray, our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. We are inviting the kingdom of God to fulfill itself even in our lives. We now serve under a king that is far beyond King David. I will fight for him against overwhelming odds and overwhelming fatigue and in a humble place. You see, and I have some notes for you here in the uh, in the program. More notes that you can look at and kind of remind us of what took place. First, look at David's mighty men. I made a quick list, and then we want to look at what Christ did. Under David's mighty men, what do we know about these men? Well, they loved their king. They searched out ways to please their king. They took initiative for the king. He didn't tell them to go get the water. They did it. They fought the enemy for their king. They faced overwhelming odds for their king. They persevered when fatigued for their king. They stood their ground in a humble place for their king. They willingly fought in isolation for their king. Everybody else goes. It's like right out of Joshua for me and my house. We will serve the Lord, regardless of what everybody else does. You may find times in your life that you are called to that when the people around you back off. They finished their call for their king. They experienced the victory of God under their king. Now we serve in a kingdom, not just any kingdom. But the ultimate kingdom. The everlasting kingdom. A kingdom bought with a price. The highest price. In the Gospel of John alone, Jesus Christ calls himself and refers to himself as three, three letters, two words. I am. We don't totally grasp the significance of those two words. I don't. 
But in the Old Testament, the word for I am could not be legally pronounced out loud. You could not say the name of God. The ultimate name of God is I am. And to say it out loud, it was so revered you couldn't do that. And so when the Pharisees and the Sadducees heard Jesus Christ referring to himself as I am, that's why they ripped their clothes. You can't say that. But he said, but I am. He talked about himself being the living water in John 4. When the woman said, I can't, I'm a woman, I can't, and, and, and you're a Jew, I mean, I can't do this for you. I'm too low. Because if you knew the water that I have for you, you would be asking me. And I would give you water that is for life eternal, everlasting water. He is the water. He is the bread of life. That's the provision when there is no provision. It seems there's no provision. I am the light of the world. Light in darkness. But in John it says, but this is the verdict. His light has come into this world, but the world did not know it. Did not know him. I am the eternal God before Abraham. They wanted to rip their clothes at that. Before Abraham. How can you compare yourself with Abraham? Oh, well, I can do that because I am before Abraham. I am the door. The access into the kingdom of God. The door. This is what you knock on. I'm the good shepherd. What's a good shepherd do? He prepares a field. He puts minerals in the field. He makes sure there's no parasites in the field. He guards the sheep against wolves. The good shepherd is there. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. That's the first time anyone could ever say that. And the life. It's through me you have the opportunity of a resurrected body. I am the way, the passage, the road. I am the truth. A lot of people will imitate the truth. A lot of spiritual leaders will imitate the truth. I am the truth. I am the life. The eternal life. There is no other life. I am the true vine. What do you owe this king? More than you can ever pay. What can you give this king? Everything you have. A black preacher in a video say it better than I can say it. Let's listen to him.